I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Stephen Marsh joins me again. He is the author of the sixth title of the Field Notes series from Biblioasis on writing and failure or the peculiar perseverance required to endure the life of a writer. It provides marvelous insight into that which a writer endures. Failure is something that a writer, it seems, has to relearn regularly. And the book provides examples from the author's own writing career, as well as various insights into how writers have kept on going. No level of success seems to cure this idea of failure that plagues all sorts of writers. Stephen also provides a number of anecdotes, a collection of rejections from writers going back to Ovid, to Dostoevsky, to James Joyce, to Melville, and more. I'll ask Stephen why it seems he is fascinated by the idea of failure and remembering the failure of others. He looks too at the relationship between suffering and creativity. He points to David Foster Wallace, among others, who have had to suffer, be it through mental illness or addiction or both, for their work. I'll ask Stephen about writer's block and how writers seem to contend with it or not. It's uh, not all that bad. Stephen Marsh is a novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He is uh, the author of a half-dozen books, including the work of fiction Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, which he was first on this program within 2007 when it was published. He has written for sundry publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Walrus, and Esquire, where he was a columnist for a number of years. The website for more is at stephenmarsh.com. He joined me from Toronto earlier this week. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Stephen Marsh. Mr. Marsh, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good. Yourself? Great. When you um, are sitting on an airplane and um, someone asks you, someone sitting next to you asks you what you do for a living, or you have to fill out a form and they mm-hmm. ask you what you do for a living, what, what do you write down? On a plane, I would say writer. Um, on a Form on an on a form in particular, I would probably put novelist because I find when you travel um, or if you're crossing borders, if you put journalist, people start to get scared. Mm. So I put uh, like, and you can get there's consequences and people get pulled over and so on. So I, I you know I just say a writer to somebody on a plane and I say and I say novelist if I'm filling out a form. I see. Um, the the idea of being a writer, I mean, was that something that you were drawn to early on, say, growing up? Very early. Yeah. From, the, from as long as I can remember, basically. What was it that, that uh, young Stephen wanted to do, say? Like, what, what was the draw? Well, I don't, I mean, you know, these things are hidden in the midst of your own self-formation. Uh, I mean, I explain it to myself a couple of ways. One is that my father, when he was 40, um, had a sort of midlife crisis and went and did a PhD in semantics in London and sort of uprooted the whole family. And while we were, you know, so he would often talk to me about um, semiotics theory and semantic analysis. And like, I remember from a very early age having like long conversations about like, do bees have language because bees make sort of figure eight patterns over different kinds of flowers. And like, does that mean that bees are actually communicating with each other? And then I had a very sort of peculiar English teacher in, you know, elementary school and junior high school who believed in sort of military discipline and gave us a very 19th century English education with sentence graphs and, you know, we read 16th century poetry, mostly early 17th century poetry. And, and that gave me a kind of like, 
when like literature mattered to me. You know, it, it felt to me when I was a kid like what adults did was think about language. Now, I've since grown up and realized that adults actually think about money, but <laughs> I can't I can't really shake that perception. So so when was it then? Because because the, the book is about failure as a writer. When when was it that that you learned this? Was it early on, or was it would that you, I learned about failure? Yeah, that that being a writer involved a lot of failure. Oh, I think that's a lesson you continuously learn, right? Like I think that's a that's a lesson that you um, begin from a very early age and just uh, and just keep keep learning. Although it's funny, but very when I was eleven, um, I submitted a. Uh, I submit. They had a, at the Edmonton Public Library where I grew up. They had a contest to who like to come up with a the title for a science fiction novel, mm-hmm. and my, I won. I might the title of my book was God Incorporated, and I remember Spider Robinson giving me when I was 11 years old a copy of Joyce Cooler Keefer's um, Machine Sex. And they like they had no idea that I was 11 years old. But I was like me as a rather rotund little boy in a bad suit coming and picking up this book. And of course, that's the only literary prize I've ever won. So I mean, maybe it was the that the, the, the success was there. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> yeah, you get it early on, and then yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, 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 as you write in the book, it's it, it's it's not enough. Uh, pardon me, not enough writers know um, that you go into this life knowing that, that, that failure is a given. Um, what, what if um, aspiring writers read this book and they're dissuaded into going into this line of work, say? Well, I, I don't think, you know, as Baldwin says, and I quote him, like, you can't really dissuade a writer from writing. Like, mm-hmm. it's not, like, if you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and if you're not, you know, no one can dissuade you from it. I mean, no one can make you do it, and no one can dissuade you from doing it. So I don't really, I don't really worry about that. I also think, you know, everyone knows that failure is involved. I think what young writers may not know is that that feeling of failure never goes away, mm. and that um, even the most massively successful writers, uh, like, live in this kind of stew of failure and this resistance of rejection that is really um, a constant. And I think. I sort of would take that as, I, I feel like these stories are very, they provide comfort and encouragement in a way, because they, um, because, you know, it, like, if you're writing and submitting things right now, you're doing what basically Ian McEwen is doing. It's mm-hmm. not, it, it's, you're in the, you're in the same activity as he is, and uh, there's, there's never going to come a point where you are just done. And you have reached this promised land. It's there, there's it's sort of permanent exile. So you, I mean, in, in a sense, the good news is the same as the bad news, right? It never ends. Have, have you ever thought? Have you ever come to the point though of, of say um, another career altogether, another pursuit altogether? Um, oh, I, I mean, I think I think everyone thinks about that. If you're a freelancer and you have not thought, oh, I just don't believe that you haven't thought that. Right, um, the instability and so on. Like it's it's very uh, it's very hard to put. But you know, I also don't think that people who stop writing, I don't think that's a that's a mistake. Mm. Like I mean, you, you know, there is there there is a there is definitely a sense I think that you when you do this that like you write out of attachment. It's not it's not somehow better to write than not to write. Like uh, it's not that it's not like somehow writing is the, the achievement. Um, I think 
the real thing you have to understand is if you want to do this, which there are lots of reasons to want to do it, um, you know, you're you you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go through failure to do it. What I found interesting, Stephen, uh, in the book is, is uh, you mentioned uh, gauging success and how mm-hmm. um, over the years, um, through your career as a writer, you seem to know less about what success is. I guess the, the yeah. prize early on at 11, I guess, set you on that course, did it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, when I was a kid, I thought that if I won the Journey Prize, I, that would be it. It would be me yeah. and Michael Andace talking about the North at Oxford <laughs> a week later, right? Like, I thought, and, and like, I, you know, I don't, um, right? And I, I also know that, like, what you, sometimes you think, oh, if I just get this, it'll all feel better, and then you get it, right? I, I mean, there is, like, Shaw's famous line, there's two things, two terrible tragedies in life. One is not getting your heart's desire, and the other is getting it. Mm. And I think in, in writing that is super true. Like, I, I think increasingly as I go on, like, the term a successful writer is more or less meaningless to me. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who feels that way. Or I know people who feel that way, but it's not like the people who feel that way and the people who don't feel that way are that, you know, are in that much material difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's, that's not really evidence of what they've done. Yeah, there's a great story where... where um... A friend of yours goes up to Margaret Atwood at a cocktail party, and uh, mentions um, uh, an article that they, they or a, 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 an op-ed that they just published in the New York Times. And right. Then, and then her response was that. Uh, she... Well, her response was, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he, he told me this, his, his story was like, well, I've written for the New York Times before, and it's like, well, yeah, you're Margaret Atwood, <laughs> like you're on a stamp, like. Um, but you know, I mean. I've known a lot of writers who've been very successful, and it is extraordinary how they, uh, that does not seem to be, uh, you know, anxiety allaying in any way. Uh, You seem to revel in in telling these stories of of writers um, who die in obscurity or worse. Um, Is that a way to make you feel better, say? Yeah, I I find them very comforting. Um, like I, the, the origin of this book is that I used to just keep a record of these stories um, at, in a kind of common book for my own, you know, because they gave me solace. I find stories of like writers struggling and then making it to be very useless. Like that's not helpful to me yeah. at all. What it, what, it, what it's it's good to know that you know James Joyce never made a living at writing. Like that's that that's a good thing for a writer to know, um, or to know that. You know, Hemingway wrote a better book every time and made less money every book that he wrote. Those are, I, I mean, those are real things that can sustain you. Because um, I think, you know, otherwise you're just sitting around going like, well, when do I get there? And there is no there. There's just going there. Yeah. Um, how much of an ego should one have as a writer? I don't know. I mean, I don't think... There's no, I, I really believe there's no should with writing. I mean, I think when you get, um, when you study literary history with any kind of breadth whatsoever, you start to realize that everyone's very, like, there's nothing to, that keeps, uh, there's no thread in the biographies of writers. They are of all races and genders and classes, 
and sometimes they're very broken people, and sometimes they're very healthy people, and sometimes they're misers, and sometimes they're spendthrifts, and they, sometimes they travel a lot and see a lot of the world, and sometimes they never leave their little village. And you know, there's, some, there's no there's no pattern to determine uh, what's the correct way to live as a writer. I, I mean, I really think that the, the dominant features are that you write and that you persevere. And um, those are those are sort of the conditions. So I, I don't really have any shoulds when it comes to writers. I, I, I think, um, you know, good writers offer advice, as I say in the book. Great writers offer condolences. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned writer's block in the book, and, and and you say that it can be a blessing in disguise. I was wondering how how, how that could be. Well, I, I mean, I think writer's block, like, I mean, if it requires perseverance to write, if it requires resistance to write, and you know, one of the more interesting things I sort of discovered writing this book is that when writers don't face a lot of opposition, like, which happens very rarely, but yeah. like. 1950s America would be, 19, post-war America would be an example where there were a lot of writers who, well, not a lot, but there were like, there was Harper Lee and there was Ralph Ellison and there was a guy who wrote a joke called Secret for the New Yorker where they were literally so successful that they never wrote again, mm. right? That they, could, they, they, they couldn't write. So, you know, if, if, it seems to require resistance in order to write. You have to be able to, you have to want to say to people, they need to see this and they aren't seeing it. Um, and if if you if it requires resistance, like maybe writer's block is just your brain saying to you, you know, you don't have to do this anymore. Like mm-hmm. it, you, you don't have like you don't have to say anymore. And I think I think treating that as a, as a failure. I mean, very recent. Like the first person who really described writer's block as we know it today is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So that's only two hundred years old. Like before then, they were just like, oh, he ran out of stuff to say. He didn't yeah, have any, yeah. anything more to write. Like which I think is much healthier. Yeah, Stephen, you you in the book you rail about the the romanticization or I guess glamorization of suffering, um, and I'm talking about alcoholism and mental illness mm-hmm. that, that seems to be ascribed to to um, I guess some people think there's a connection between that suffering and creativity. Is there? I I mean, I, I really don't. I really hate the idea that writers need to suffer. Um, I think it's. I think the, I, I don't believe that suffering ennobles anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I, I also think like when you when you look into mental illness and and writing, it, it, and it's particularly in alcoholism and writing. Um, Jermaine Greer actually wrote a wonderful book about alcoholism and writing. Um, it becomes pretty clear that the alcoholism destroys writing, uh, and the mental illness destroys writing. I mean, it, even in David Foster Wallace's case, that you know, it's pretty clear. Like when his, when he was on his meds and everything was going well, that's when he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, like. But at the same time, there are definitely cases where suffering can sort of provide, you know, these weird uh, takes. Like, I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting is that Machiavelli, before he wrote The Prince, was tortured for quite a long while, right? And, and that's exactly what advises people to do in his book, which is an extraordinary thing. Like, I, I think he, he, he could not really write The Prince unless he'd been tortured, mm-hmm. right? And, like, Lorenzo the Magnificent could never have written The Prince. It was only Machiavelli, sort of, in exile, broke, uh, you know, uh, totally out of power, um, that he had enough perspective to write that book. And then there are other examples, Anak Madova, uh, Dostoevsky. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of cases where people's suffering really did give them a kind of unique perspective on, on the world. 
um, that filtered into their writing. But, no, I mean, I don't believe that alcoholism or mental illness contributes to anything. I think there are risks mm-hmm. in this profession the same way that, uh, you know, losing a finger is a risk if you work in a sawmill, right? right? Yeah. It, it's the kind of thing you have to take precautions against. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this by magazines or, or, or newspapers that, that, that ask um, what a writer's day is like or, or what sort of what tools they use. Um, I, I was curious about that as, as, as I was reading the book. Do, do you write um, directly to a computer, say, or do, do you use pen and paper still? Or I um, write everything longhand first uh-huh. um, and on in notebooks. Um, this book I actually wrote, if you can believe it, uh, with a fountain pen. Mm. And I wrote uh, very, I wrote it twice. Because I thought I, I, there were certain things that I wanted to do with it, like I, the word when never appears in it. I wanted to write a history book where the word ne- when never mm. appeared. Um, and, you know, you have to be, you have to have very concentrated to do that. Yeah, I mean, th- then of course I do everything on computer afterwards and edit and so on, but... I feel like I can't concentrate when I'm on a computer. Um, like, if I'm on a computer, I'm probably watching Goodfellas <laughs> while, while I'm doing whatever else I'm doing on a computer, right? So, uh, you know, it's I, I handwrite everything, yeah. And why a fountain pen as opposed to, say, a ballpoint pen or a pencil? Well, I wanted to write it. I wanted to write this as sort of like, you know how it's like these conscious sections, like very small sections? Uh-huh. I want it, I, it was, I mean, I don't do everything this way, but for this particular book, I thought um, I'll write each of them in one go, and that way it'll have a kind of coherence to it. Like, uh, like it'll, like I, then it'll, each section will be like it will be like one burst of thought, and I'll think about it for a long time, and go for walks and think about it, and then I'll sit down and write it all down. And you know, it, it, a lot of it did survive that way. Hmm. So, and, and a and a and a fountain pen. Um, is it, I, like one of the things I like about it is that it uh, it's very fluid, and it and it allows you. I mean, it, you can't really use it very often because it gets so messy. Yeah. But it um, but it uh, you, feel the, you you feel the concentration of the materiality a bit more. Uh, that, that's what I thought. I switched to a fountain pen about fifteen years ago. Because I I switched to a fountain pen about fifteen you, years yeah. ago. Because I, well, I, I think I, I, I wouldn't use it for everything. Yeah. Like mostly I use like high tech point B fives and so on. Sure. But like, but I, I think for for some specific writing things that you want to do, where you're just trying to get like really concentrated acts, I think they they definitely work. Yeah, I, I guess I aspired to be a writer at one point, and I thought that maybe if I changed whatever tool I was using, um, well, it would. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, like you know, I mean. I, I've seen writers. I, I know a kid writer who's actually a great writer who writes on his phone. Huh? I mean, I can't. I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. But like, he's like literally on his phone, to, like doing it with his. I and I've done that for journalism pieces before. But like, you know, everyone has their own patterns. I mean, I've never met a writer who didn't have a really weird system. Yeah, so I don't. I have no no desire to be a writer, and it's not because of, I've read your book, but. Um, I just use the fountain pen still because it's. I guess it's just some silly affectation now. What kind do you have? Um, I don't think it's silly at all. They're beautiful things. <laughs> they are. I use, I generally use Parker because they're the cheapest ones you can get. And um, I have a Mont Blanc I inherited from my father that's just beautiful. But uh, I, I mean, 
I think they're like to me they're like really good Japanese knives. Like if you've yeah, ever used a yeah. proper Japanese knife in a kitchen, you'll never go back. Indeed, right? Like it's it just makes it so much more enjoyable to be there. I mean, one of the things my father-in-law um, is Bob Fulford, who is a great right. great journalist and great writer, and he always said he gave me a, he gave me some great advice. But one of the things he said is always have great pens and always have a comfortable seat so that you never have an excuse not to write. Right? Huh, that's great advice. You, like, you, don't, you don't want to have a moment where you're like, well, I don't have a pen. Yeah. Like that, like that, you know, like that's, um, that, that's, you, you want to avoid all those excuses. Stephen, does the failure of, of um, the, uh, the, that one gets in the life of a writer, does that prepare you for, for say, other aspects of one's life, whether it's a, being a spouse or a parent or a citizen even? I don't know. I mean, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I think, you know, one of the epigraphs of this book is that uh, is from George Orwell, and he says, um, you know, any life lived from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats, which I think is a very profound line, and and I and I've been thinking about it ever since I um, uncovered it for myself, and it, like it, it's a, I mean, I think, you know. Way yes, I would like to say, but I think writing actually involves failure at a pretty intense level. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the act of writing itself is mostly throwing things out, right? You go and write things with your fountain pen, and then and then you say, oh, it's terrible, and you throw it away, and or you rewrite it and and, and you chop it up, or and then you give it to other people and they chop it up and they like and and, and that's the that's in the granular nature of the activity. Right, it's like a huge amount of um, failure, like and and being aware that you're you're failing, and then and then and that's way before you know the career stuff or any of that stuff, right? So I think like failure, the the kind of failure that I'm talking about this book is is specific to writing in a sense. Like it's uh, writing is a is a learning to write with learning to fail with grace, learning to fail meaningfully. Um, you know, I do think that's important in life generally, um, but on the other hand, I think in writing it's particularly vital. Um, I, I first interviewed you, I'm trying to do the math in my head now, 15, 16 years ago when your novel came out, your first novel? Wow, um, that's a long time ago. The, the thing I've noticed about you and following your career since then is that you've been able to write different things. So, so we talked about a novel um, those years ago. You've, you've done uh, journalism, uh, profiles, um, yeah. um, all sorts of nonfiction essays in the sort. Um, does the mind of, of a writer change with whatever kind of writing they're doing? Well, I mean, I think, you know, part, yes, I think so. I think, I think the, the mind of a writer, you, you, you have different applications for certain things. I mean, I think I am pretty um, robustly flexible. Like, I like doing different things, and I like, I, I, I sort of, um, you know, I, I have zero snobbery. I love to, I love to work on many, many different things. Uh-huh. But I, I think part of it is that we're just living in a period of such intense turbulence, and writing is in such a period of intense turbulence that you, you have to live through multiple phases of this. I mean. You know, when you interviewed me last time, 15 years ago, I mean, I was I was a Shakespeare professor then, writing avant-garde novels. Then I went into another period where I was a columnist for Esquire magazine, where I wrote a monthly column that paid me enough to live every month on one column, and then an editor would, 
you know, a, a, an editor would grind through six or seven edits uh, per column. Like, it would take three weeks mm-hmm. for us to write those columns. That only ended, like, six years ago, but that's already, like, a, another world, like, yeah. a histo- like a historical period that's completely different from our own. Now there's audio, now there's, uh, you know, AI, now there's all this stuff. I mean, it has been... I think one of the reasons I write so differently is that I'm just trying to roll with the punch right? yeah. <laughs> and trying to adjust to the, uh, to the changing foundations um, that, underpin, that are underpinning writing. Yeah, and I guess if, if, if one didn't do that, um, they, they wouldn't be a writer for very long, would they? Well, they would certainly be broke, yeah. right? <laughs> and they would certainly have to find another job. That is for sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, you would, you adjust to the economic realities for sure. I mean, like, not that I've, you know, uh, adjusted my way out because I do feel like I've, I've only worked on stuff that I really like. And I, 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 you know, there's nothing that I look at that I'm like, well, that was, you know, I, I'm ashamed of that. I, like, I like all of it. And I, and you know, it's exciting too. Like, it's all, it's not all negative. It's like, yeah. oh my God, there's this, there's this really cool, way to write audio essays that's emerged. Like, let's get into that. It's so cool, right? Um, or, like, writing columns from it. Like, it's very fun to do that, right? So, it, like, it's... Um, I, I think adjusting is, is sort of a necessity. Yeah. Um, and and um, as you write in the book, uh, a, a way to gauge success today, I mean, you don't have to teach to be a writer, right? I don't, but, I mean, almost everyone else I know does. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like I mean, it is it is one of those things where um, I, I it, you know, that just has not been on my path, um, and uh, and yeah, like it's I, I mean, it's certainly for fiction writers, that is the that is really the path to a living right now, for sure. The other thing I was curious about, Stephen, is is um, uh, other than your tools, is there a certain time of day where where you write best? Yes, I wake up at four in the morning and write until my kids wake up. Really? That's the only, like, I learned that when I had really young children, and it was just like, that was the only time that I could, you know, be assured that I could concentrate. So, I, yeah, I wake up, I wake up about, about four in the morning, I, I write until my kids wake up, talk to them for a little bit, maybe go for a run, have a nap, and then write work again. And you don't have, I, I guess, while you're writing, you don't have music or anything playing in the background, do you? Um... Rarely, until yeah. through phases. Lately, I haven't. Sometimes I have been doing that, but I really like to write in, in quiet. Really, the, the piece at the end of the book, I, I found it such a, a captivating. Um, uh, I really loved it, and and for people listeners who haven't read the book yet, I, I don't know how would you describe that. I mean, it's a short story, right? Fable. Maybe mm. I mean, that's how I sort of thought of it, like a. a a sort of four-page fable about falling in love with writing, really, yeah. and 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 being entranced by literature and and what it means. I mean, it's an, an allegory through a, through a grand hotel. Yeah. I mean, Kafka ripoff. That, that might be another like cheap Kafka ripoff. That might be another way to describe it. But um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's just. I, I, you know, it's a very hard-headed book in some ways. Like it's, it's. I, I, the, the point of it is to be frank about how the, uh, how the writing life works, really. But I, I, at the end, I wanted to be like, you know, affirm this. Like this is this is worth doing. 
like this is there is something truly beautiful um, in this process and in this uh, and, and valuable in this activity. And you know you shouldn't forget that either. I guess the thing that that um, as I was reading that piece at the end, um, I mean it involves a lot of hurt. Um, have Have you managed to to come away all these years uh, being a writer without say the hurt manifesting itself physically? Say no. Well, I think um, uh, no. I would. I'm not sure. I would describe it as hurt. Um, I mean, I think I would describe it as a failure, right? And, uh, it, like, I think you're, how you react to it is really different over, over time and depends on a lot of situations. Like, for example, in COVID, it's a lot harder mm. to deal with your failures when you're, like, locked in a, uh, in a house with, with, with your people. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, the, the point is it isn't actually hurt. It actually is just you being in the world and being bumped around a bit. And the more that you get used to being bumped around a bit, the easier it gets, right? I mean, I stopped, as I say in the book, I stopped counting my rejections at around 2000. And that sounds brutal, but, you know, actually that's a sign of, like, just how healthy the market was. Because, mm. like, I could, I could be rejected so much more because of the Internet. And because of the Internet, I could also, you know, submit things to the New Yorker and the Guardian and, you know, magazines in Singapore and whatever and get, like... This, this, all that rejection is a sign of a, a, a more open marketplace, really, and a more open world. So, you know, I, yeah, I don't, um, uh, I, I would say hurt is the wrong word. Word. I mean, there are a lot of writers out there who are in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I would like seriously in prisons in Iran and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's not what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, I, I do a little bit in the book, but like, I, I have it really easy. Yeah, I guess I, I equated failure with with the pain of the guy hitting his shoulder against the door, well, throwing yeah, himself I against guess the door. That would, be the, that would be the right metaphor, actually. Quite yeah. like the pain of throwing your sh- your your shoulder against the door yeah. and having it creak open a little bit. But that's not the same thing as you know having your head put in a vice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's why I never became a writer because I just didn't want. I equated the, the failure with pain and hurt, and <laughs> and I just thought that there is a lot of failure. I mean. Yeah. There, you have to get used to it. You have to adjust to it, and some people just can't. It's true. Stephen, I hope it's not another uh, 15, 16 years that we talk. Um, I uh, <laughs> I actually enjoyed the, the, the book, the, the one that came out last year, The Next Civil War, and, and uh, I, I uh, even though I'm, I'm not married and, and with children, I, I like the book that you and Sarah did. Oh, great. I'm so glad. That's wonderful news. Thanks for your time. I yeah, appreciate well, have this. Yeah, have me on the next one for sure. Will do. Thanks again. Okay. Great to talk to you. The website for more is at stephenmarsh.com. The book is called On Writing and Failure, or the Peculiar Perseverance Required to Endure the Life of a Writer. It is the sixth title in the Field Note series, published by Biblioasis. Stephen Marsh, join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.